Hey creatives, you're listening to The Truth is Golden, a podcast produced by Revelator Studio and hosted by yours truly. My name is Arno, welcome to this episode. It is a show about creative minds, what makes them tick, their successes, failures, and everything in between. It is for people who are interested to learn more about creativity and its potential to make the world a better place. Follow us on our website at rvltr.studio. So today I have the pleasure to count Terry O'Reilly as the show's distinguished guest. Terry's a radio and television ad man with decades of experience and best known as the host of the CBC podcast Under the Influence. Thank you very much, Terry, for being on the show. It's a real pleasure to have you. Well, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. So I want to start with uh, going back in time a little bit. And can you tell us uh, what you were like as a kid? <laughs> what was I like as a kid? Well, um, I liked sports. So I was, a, I was a fanatical hockey player as a kid. Street hockey was a big thing. I grew up in Sudbury, Ontario, where there's a lot of winter. And uh, we loved our hockey, so street hockey, and playing on rinks too, but street hockey was really a big part of my life growing up. I also loved television. I would watch movies as a kid and uh, television shows. My dad loved popular culture, so I think I absorbed that through osmosis by just being around my dad and having, you know, watching him watch movies and laughing and just, he would, you know, he had a great encyclopedic knowledge of movie actors back in the day and uh, and and a lot of those actors came to television in the 60s so i think my my big um kind of uh exposure to pop culture really happened when i was a kid and so you mentioned you grew up in uh in uh, you said sudbury right yes yeah. what, what was that like for you um that's an interesting question because Sudbury was a very isolated community uh, as far as television and radio signals went because, of course, of the amount of rock formation around Sudbury, which made it the nickel capital of the world, by the way. And I did work in the mine in Sudbury as a summer job, almost 4,000 feet underground in my university days. But uh, what was interesting about the fact it was very isolated, that meant we didn't get many signals bouncing in from outside the city. In other words, we had CBC television for many years was the only television station we could get. And then I think maybe in the late sixties, I'm not sure if my math is right, but we got CTV and then global, but we really, we didn't get any American stations. Radio was even worse. We only got local stations. We couldn't really tune in any stations from afar. So what that meant was we had very limited access to pop culture. Movies were a big part of my growing up. I should mention that too. We went to the movies all the time because that was the only other way we could sort of get a little fix of pop culture. But I think when I look back, I think I had to use my imagination a lot because there was so little incoming, you know, pop culture uh, uh, information. So I think if anything, it probably fueled my imagination as a kid. Well, and that's the perfect segue into the next question I had for you is that how did that influence your later life? And, and, and I guess by extension, how did you end up um, in advertising? Was, was there a correlation there? Well, something happened to me when I was four years old, which is interesting. So I was on a television show called Romper Room. 
which if people of a certain age will remember that show, it was a very famous show for kids. And I was on that TV show in Sudbury. And one day, uh, the director of the show pulled my mom aside and said, could we put Terry in a TV commercial we're shooting in another studio for a local bakery? My mother said, okay. So they brought me over to this other studio and I was told to stand beside the, the announcer and there was a table in front of us and there was bread and butter and the, you know, a loaf of the bread from the bakery. And they said to me, you just have to smile and eat the bread while the announcer talks about the bakery. And so they shot this TV commercial when I was four. And that aired in Sudbury for probably four or five years. So I had that weird sensation of watching myself as a four-year-old when I was really eight and nine years old. And I, you know, when I look back, or no, I wonder if somewhere in my psyche, that little bit of, uh, of excitement and glamour and advertising kind of creeped into my, into my DNA because years later I went to uh, Ryerson in Toronto to study film and television. I didn't know what I wanted to do exactly uh, as a career, but I knew it was somewhere in the broadcast industry because that was just so fascinating to me. And every Wednesday morning, we would have a lecture class where somebody from the industry would come into our classroom and just talk about their career. So it could be documentary filmmakers or news reporters, or uh, we had Norman Jewison come in and talk about film directing, and Lloyd Robertson came in to talk about announcing the news. And one day, these advertising people came in and talked about the world of advertising. You know, the coming up with creative ideas to sell products and working with actors and scripts and studios and print ads and photographers and strategy. And I sat in the back of that room and I saw my future. I just it just suited me right down to the ground. So that's the moment in time where I decided I wanted to be a writer in advertising. That's a very interesting story. I actually have a very similar epiphany as to why I picked the career I picked, but it's not a point of this interview. Uh, I can certainly relate to how that can happen. Um, so if you could do it all over again, would you pick a different career? No, I loved, I loved every minute of my career. Um, it's a difficult business because there is a lot of stress. There's a lot of, uh, impossible deadlines, some very difficult clients. It's, there's a lot of big money at stake, but the upside is it was exciting. It was dynamic. The people in the industry are smart and bright and I love the creative challenge. I love, I look at marketing as a puzzle and I've always loved the puzzle aspect of marketing of trying to figure out, you know, what is the creative idea? What are the exact words? How does, what would I have to say to persuade somebody to consider this product? I mean, everything about it, I loved for over 35 years. And I said to one of my daughters one day when she was wondering what to pursue as a career. And I said, you, you got to pick something you love because I can honestly say in over 35 years, I never looked at the clock one day in my career. Like I never wondered when will this day be over? When I looked at the clock, I was always amazed that the whole day had gone by. So it was, I never dreaded going to work a single day in my advertising career. I just absolutely loved it. Uh, that's a great thing to have. Um, so you launched Pirate in, in 1990, if I'm correct, and you owned it for many, many years. Um, can you tell us what Pirate was about and what made it unique? When you are a, an advertising copywriter, meaning someone who writes ads in an advertising agency, you write, you, know, you write a commercial, you present it to your creative director, you present it to the client, and if it gets approved, the next step is to hire a production company. So if it was a television commercial, you'd hire a production company with a director and a producer and the, the whole army of crew required to shoot the commercial. Or if it was a radio commercial, you would hire a production company who would have a director and then they would and a recording studio and you would, you know, they would hire the actors and then you'd direct the commercials and et cetera. So I found very early on in my agency life that I was hiring these very expensive directors and I was always fighting to save my work from the director. 
instead of the director really make enhancing my work i was always fighting the director because the i found the directors wanted to change the work wanted to change the idea wanted to change the wording wanted to throw out the selling aspect of the script and just focus on the humor and i was always uh clashing with the directors so i got to the point in my career where i thought to myself there has to be a better way so that was really the the company i co-founded pirate really was the company i could not find so we created Pirate to be a company that directed commercials from a writer's point of view. In other words, it respected the script because I was a writer. I knew what it took to get an idea through the gauntlet of approvals to get to a production company. So Pirate became the place where ideas were safe. And that was really the genesis of Pirate. Very, very interesting. So can you speak or share with us maybe one or two highlights uh, of your time at Pirate, things that really stuck with you or were pivotal moments in your career? Pirate had a lot of wonderful opportunities. We, I mean, we did Olympic advertising. We did advertising for prime ministers in elections. We did the first AIDS advertising. We did the first cellular phone advertising. There's a lot of firsts in the, in the decades at Pirate, which I loved. Um, we did a lot of really creative work. We, you wouldn't come to pirate unless you wanted a big creative idea because that's all we were interested in. And, and we weren't cheap. We, 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 in other words, we, uh, we charged a, a, a decent amount of money for our ideas because we believed in ideas. So if you wanted a safe idea, you wouldn't come to pirate. Or if you wanted a, a cheap, quick idea, you wouldn't come to pirate. You would only come to us if you were serious about creativity. So what I loved about Pirate when I look back is that we, we did so much interesting creative radio work specifically for brands that really hadn't thought much about radio prior to that. We tried, what Pirate did was it made radio sexy. Mm -hmm. When I started in the business, when you were doing a radio campaign, you would, I always found myself in the basement of a building somewhere in Toronto with no windows in a very dark foreboding studio. <laughs> And what we created a pirate was the opposite of that. We decorated them like beautiful Muskoka cottages and every, and every studio had big windows looking out onto the city. And we, instead of handing clients, you know, greasy menus to take, to order takeout food at lunch, we brought in five star catering every single day. We fed our staff breakfast every morning and our clients breakfast every morning. We had, you know, we were, we had a beautiful uh, breakfast spread out in our kitchen and on Fridays we would make pancakes and eggs and because I always had this rule that a family that eats together stays together. So we created a place where radio was fun and people really look forward to coming to Pirate because the experience was great, the environment was great, we, we fed people wonderful dishes because you're in the studio all day long. And the other thing I'll say, Arno, is we, we were the first, I would say, in Canada to use celebrities in radio advertising. In other words, we taught the ad business that they could hire Hollywood, like really talented Hollywood performers for really affordable sums of money. So we, we really led the charge in hiring, you know, like the, you know, some of the people from Seinfeld to be in commercials and uh, it just really funny, either great voices or funny comedians, but we taught them that you could actually tap uh, talent out of Hollywood. And that, that really, and that really uh, enhanced the sound of radio in Canada, I think, when we were able to not only use great Canadian actors, but mix it up occasionally with really great Hollywood talent. And those are very interesting stories. And you touched on, um, on the culture, which I want to go back to in uh, a little bit later. Um, but in recent years, you have focused more on telling stories about advertising. And as you've uh, described what you do, 
give people a backstage to the world of advertising uh, through the po podcast and the many talks you give. How did that transition come about and was there a, a, a desire behind it? Every year for many, many years, I would hold a creative radio seminar in Toronto. So I would hire, I would rent rather a big theater <clears throat> somewhere in Toronto and I would invite 200 young copywriters from across the country to join me for the day. I would feed them breakfast, feed them lunch, and have an open bar at the end of the day. But I would stand on that stage, Arno, for seven hours, and I would teach them how to create effective radio. I would talk to them about uh, writing and, and script structure and casting and the use of sound effects and how to use music and how to present radio, because I think radio is the toughest medium to present, and how to, what's, you know, what the studio protocol was when you're in a recording studio, etc. So I would do that every year. It was always sold out. It was always a big, great day. And one day I was out to lunch with a couple of uh, friends of mine who were in the radio business. And one of them said to me, you know, you know that radio seminar you do every year, Terry, that would make a great radio show. And I said, uh, who would ever run that? And he said, he paused for a moment and he said, the CBC. And I said, the advertising free CBC would run a show on advertising. And he laughed and he said, I think they'd run that one. So we laughed and we were you know, drinking a few beers in the sunshine and then I went home and I couldn't get it out of my mind. And someone else at that uh, lunch, there were four of us, called me up and said, you know, what Larry said to you uh, has really stuck with me. Do you want to see, do you want to go pitch the CBC on doing a radio show on the advertising business? And I said, yeah, I would like to do that. So the two of us made a couple of calls to CBC and we got an audience with the head of CBC radio and we s walked in the room and we pitched a show idea on the, a backstage pass to the world of advertising. And that's how that whole show got off the ground. And so was there a transition between um, your production work at Pirate and the podcast and a point where you decided um, to uh, sort of leave the production world and, and focus more on the, I guess, educational part of what you do? Um, the show started in 2005, so 14 years ago. So I... I mean, I still, you know, ran Pirate with my partner, still directed. I directed about 500 commercials a year. That was my workload. And I did that until 2012 and doing the show at the same time. So in 2012, I uh, sold my shares in my company to my younger partners. And that was a transition point where I left advertising as a full-time job and then became more of a, you know, I would give key, I, and I still do, I give keynote talks to confer, marketing conferences across the country, trying to convince clients to do better advertising. I got to spend more time on the radio show. Instead, instead of just doing it at night till two in the morning, I could actually do it right in research during the day. Mm -hmm. And I've, and I've written a few books. I have a third book, uh, starting up now on, uh, you know, talking about, uh, the first two were on advertising and marketing, of course. And, uh, so I really, I'm at the stage in my life now where I can really just pursue what I want to pursue. So it's a pretty wonderful stage, a pretty wonderful third act. Are you at liberty to tell us a little more about that new book? Um, I won't say too much yet because I'm really, I don't want to curse it. I'm just getting going on it. But I'll say this. It's a, it's a book about silver linings. I'll say that. Well, you have my, you have my attention. Um, so you've uh, talked extensively about the need to stand out and being bold for marketers, especially, but I think companies in general. Why is that so important to you? Well, I've always always been a fan of bold marketing. That was really, as I mentioned earlier, the signpost of of pirates mission was really to stand out with bold work. I, I think it's important for a couple of reasons. I think that no, 
no brand ever really has the the advertising budget it wished it had unless you're talking you know the big big apples of the world i mean but but i mean canadian brands in particular they all they all have you know smallish budgets and i think the way to stand out in the crowd is to be bold because i think being bold makes up for a lack of budget it just gets attention it cuts through the clutter it makes people take a second look at you it makes them reconsider you because there's a there's a you know a contempt for advertising out there or at the very least a disinterest in it and i think bold work actually just gets attention and then once you get the attention you can actually deliver a message so i'm a big fan i think the the, the riskiest work is safe work because it just gets lost in the sea of sameness out there so i just Whenever I had a client who was balking at doing some creative work or, or taking a, a calculated risk, I'd say, no, 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 no. Like, the risk is doing safe work, not bold work. That makes sense. So can, can, can one make a, um, an evidence-based case for risk-taking and marketing? And, and in your experience, has that proven to be more effective in the long run than just being safe? Like, could you put together numbers that say risk-takers do better? Well, I, I, I can from my experience. Whenever we did really, really great work for a company or a brand, the results were almost instantaneous. It was that you know small brands were suddenly competing with their bigger uh, competitors, and we would get such incredible feedback from the owners of the company saying, "This is amazing! How many calls I'm getting on this advertising, or how many product, how much product I sold this weekend as a result of that." And even if you look at the Cannes Advertising Festival, and I did an episode of my show on this, where the world comes to compete in the advertising industry, mm -hmm. Cannes did a great um, research project on how well the campaigns that won the biggest awards at Cannes, how well they did in the marketplace. In other words, not just that they were creative, but were they effective? And they published this amazing research document, and, and just because, and they wanted to, you know, proved that it was valid, they got a big university involved in it too, so it didn't become just a self-serving exercise. And the results of that research were astounding to me. Like all the brands that won the biggest awards at Cannes, for the, I can't remember the span, I want to say it was like 15 years of work they looked at, mm -hmm. all, be, all had huge leaps in market share, which proved again, and in, on the world stage I felt, that creativity is in fact the most powerful business tool. This this is great. Uh, it's been a bit of a, a hobby of mine to talk about uh, positioning creativity and culture, and you've talked a little bit about that when you described what pirate is. Um, how do you think uh, a, a good, a well-positioned company, a company who knows itself really well and knows what they're good at and what makes them unique compared to everybody else? Um, how important is that in your opinion, and how do you relate that to the actual marketing of their products, ideas, or services? Well, I think company culture is vitally important because I think that every successful company has uh, a code that they live to or live up to or aspire to, that they're inside every great company, there is a well-defined, well-articulated mission. In other words, here's what we stand for and here's what we stand against. That, that those two things are beautifully articulated by the, by the leadership and constantly communicate it to the staff. That's not something you can communicate once and hope everybody, you know, keeps in their heart. I think it's something that has to be totally re-communicated constantly so that all ships sail in this, in the right direction, in the same direction. That everybody knows why you're doing what you're doing. And I think that 
a company's branding is really just the external e expression of their internal mission. So that's why if marketing is to be genuine and authentic and, and unique, that it has to come from the internal elements of a company, that, that the external expression, meaning the marketing, is an expression of what's going on inside the walls of the company. So if a company has a weak culture or an antagonistic one or one that really isn't gelling, you're going to feel that in the marketing. The people are not going to what the marketing promises isn't what people are going to experience when they actually do business with that company. There'll be a disconnect there. But I think the smartest companies, the best companies, the companies that people want to work for have the best internal cultures. They're just it's exciting to be there every day. So so in your experience is there a cor correlation between Uh, companies with great cultures and companies who do great um, advertising or have great marketing. For sure, I think um, I think the the ad let, let's talk about advertising agencies. I think the advertising agency Wyden and Kennedy that does all the Nike work mm -hmm. is probably the most fantastic place to work as far as an advertising agency goes. Because I look at that place from a distance, and I'm amazed at 35 years of outstanding work for all sorts of clients, not just Nike. How the staff really stays, like all the leadership at the top of Wine and Candy have been there for 20 plus years, which is a testament in advertising because there's so much movement in the in the ranks of advertising. People don't stay at a company's very long anymore, mm -hmm. but they stay there. And that company lives in uh, Portland, Oregon. It's not in Los Angeles or New York or Chicago. So there's a lifestyle that's attached to that. That's interesting. The fact they can attract so many creative people to Portland because, you know, it's an outpost. It's not one of the big advertising cities says a lot about that company. So I think the culture inside there is why their work is so good, so consistently over the years. Yeah, that's, I think that's a great example. Um, I have the, the the feeling, and it's it's not backed by any fact, but it's something I've been observing for a while, that we live in an era where consumers are able to tell uh, better between a bullshit brand and a more authentic one. Why do you think that is? Well, I think a large part of that has to be social media because, you know, with just a couple of clicks of your of your mouse, you can get behind a company pretty quickly. In other words, there's a lot of transparency going on right now. And I, I think, you know, when somebody somebody has a problem with the company and they air their their you know dismay or their their anger on social media, we all have a front row seat to see how the company responds to that. I mean, before pro uh, social media, that would be a very private exchange, but in this day and age, a company has to sort of put its its values on display. And I think that's a very interesting thing that a company has to walk the walk these days. And because, you know, social media and, and just being on the web, just the internet in general gives us so much access, so many access points to a company. We can watch for inconsistencies or a BS statement where they say we are this, but then they prove that they're really not in how they actually function. I think it's just very easy, easy to see. And so would you say this, uh, all this exposure and social media in particular, um, Is it a, a net positive or, or more of a negative? Well, there's two sides of that coin, of course. There's a lot of hate on social media, which I think is not good. I, I, I'm a big Twitter fan. I love Twitter, but there's a lot of, a lot of nastiness on Twitter. Uh, the, the flip side to that is the transparency, I think, is good. I think the fact companies have to walk the walk, that they have to live up to you know, their advertising because social media is so immediate and so penetrating – I think is a good thing, but like I say, it's it's a it's a it's a mixed bag social media that way. 
So in, in the course of my research for this, uh, this particular interview, um, I heard you speak about uh, good marketing um, or generally campaigns that are able to tap into people's emotions. And um, there's more and more evidence out there backed by science and specifically people like Simon Sinek have spoken extensively about that. Um, why do you think this is still ignored by the majority, even though it's it's becoming more and more clear that this is how the brain works? I think emotions are the soft aspects of marketing that can't really be measured in many ways. And I think a lot of business people going for their MBAs at certain universities, I think they look at emotion as being kind of flaky, that it's seen kind of as a banned substance, that it's not quantifiable, it isn't numbers, it isn't uh, ROI, it isn't EBITDA, it isn't you know, something that, uh, that an, uh, uh, an accountant can put a finger on. Yet, emotion is what drives all the great brands in the world. It's, I, I'm a big believer that if you can add emotion to your marketing, that's what makes people actually act on the marketing. If you make it a purely intellectual exercise where you're just downloading information on people, they'll hear it, but I don't think they'll act on it. I think there has to be an emotional element. And that means it could be, it could stir some emotions and somebody could make them laugh. It could make them, um, uh, curious. In other words, as long as it, it, it invokes a, a visceral reaction, I think the chances of somebody acting on that message go way up. And the other thing is, I think when every brand loves loyalty and it's very hard to, you know, uh, fuel loyalty in this day and age, but I think emotion is what loyalty is all about. You know, like I'm, I'm an Apple guy. I have lots of Apple products because I'm invested emotionally in that brand. I loved everything Steve Jobs stood for as far as, you know, being an underdog at that time and just, you know, taking computing power out of the hands of IBM, so to speak, and putting it into the hands of the, of the everyday person. I mean, I loved that war he was fighting and I was invested in that. And, and I said, when I look at the brands that I love, it's an emotional investment for me. I just, there's something about those brands that makes me want to go back and, and continue to repurchase or do business with them again. It's not price point per se, and it's not convenience. It's a, it's an emotional attachment, so to speak, just an emotional alignment, maybe is a better word, but I love, I love what they stand for. So in your mind, um, which are the brands you think that have been the, the best at creating this level of loyalty? Well, <clears throat> as I said, I love Apple. I love Apple products. I love what, what I love the foundational underpinnings of Apple in the Steve Jobs era. They've gone from underdog to overlord, which is interesting. So we'll have to see how Apple does. They're no, no longer an underdog, are they? As the <laughs> second most valuable company in the world or whatever they are. Yeah. So I love what Apple's done. I love it. I love Apple's marketing. The 1984, famous 1984 television spot. Mm -hmm. If your listeners have not ever seen that, they should look up Apple 1984 on YouTube. That commercial sums up the emotional you know, resonance of Apple for all time that it, it summed up the fight Steve Jobs wanted to, the war he wanted to wage on corporate computing, which is why I love Apple. I think um, up until recently, I think Volkswagen, shy of the scandal they just had, but if you look at them historically, I loved, that's why I got into the advertising business too in another way, was the great advertising work that VW did in the 60s and 70s. I just loved, I just, they made the most ugliest, underpowered car, the most beloved car of all time. And I, I own a vintage Volkswagen because I'm so emotionally attached to that brand mm -hmm. because of that great work. I think Roots, the clothing company, has got great emotion attached to their, their products. I think their products are beautiful. I think that whole 
you know, Algonquin Park feel of all of their stores and, and all of their product. And they do very little advertising, but they've created a brand that when you walk into a root store, you know that you're in a, in a, a company that has an actual, you know, aesthetic and belief system. And I love what they do. <clears throat> so I buy a lot of stuff from Roots. I think they're terrific marketers. Um, I think WestJet, although I don't fly WestJet a lot because I'm in, um, I'm out east, but I think WestJet does a lot of great marketing that has a lot of heart attached to it. They do those great Christmas videos. Whenever I've flown WestJet, the, the flight attendants and the people at the, the ticket desks are very funny, very interesting, not corporate at all. I remember being flying WestJet on a Halloween one day and I was in the airport, I think in Edmonton maybe, and I was going to the WestJet counter and it, and it was interesting because you look at the long line of airlines, airline counters, like, the, you know, as you know, they're side by side along, you know, a long stretch of wall, yeah. Canada, you know, and American Airlines, whatever it might be. Anyway, there was WestJet <clears throat> and it was all decorated in Halloween. It was like cobwebs and when everybody was dressed as witches and goblins and it was just so funny that that's the only desk in a gigantic airport that had a personality and it just speaks so well of WestJet. So I think they're another brand that really ha ha has heart. There's emotion in, like at the stirring at the heart of that, of those brands. Mm -hmm. um, and you've talked also a lot about Nike and Nike, sorry, and um, specifically uh, what happened last year with uh, Colin Kaepernick and how they are not afraid to stick by their um, athletes through thick and thin. I recently came up um, came upon a story that was really interesting. I don't know if you're familiar with the uh, rock climber Alex Arnold, um, no. who just released a movie called Free Solo, and he's the only rock climber who has free soloed uh, El Capitan and uh, Half Dome in Yosemite, which free soloing means you're climbing without a rope. So you're climbing literally 3,000 feet wall uh, with no safety whatsoever. Wow. And uh, he was at some point sponsored by uh, Cliff Bar. Mm -hmm. And uh, they eventually dropped him because they said they couldn't get behind his um, his taste for risk um and and knowing what i know about him i don't think he's like purposely looking for risk it's just more uh, a function of who he is and and how he perceives perceives risk what's your take on companies um dropping sponsees for because they, they see it as too much of a risk how would you look at that well that's interesting i mean it, it's a case-by-case -case basis the answer to that question um you know nike's interesting because kaepernick has taken a big stand and Nike has really has chosen to stay with him where, you know, he can't even get a job in the NFL right now, but, but Nike stood with him. I think that that speaks well of Nike. I think they're on the right side of history on that one. And I do like that they don't abandon their athletes. I mean, they, they have dropped, I said in a recent show, they did drop their sponsorship of um, the Blade Runner, Pistorius, who, who uh, shot and killed his girlfriend. Um, so they, they, they of course severed the relationship there, but they stood by Tiger Woods through all of his troubles and they support Ka Kaepernick. And I think it's interesting that they support Ka Kaepernick because Nike is the official Jersey supplier to the NFL, which tells you that they're in deep with the NFL, yet they still chose to stand behind Kaepernick when most of the NFL owners were standing against Kaepernick. So that took a lot of guts, I think for Nike to put, to put uh, values before revenue there. So, so I'm not sure if you're privy to, and, and I, I don't think that would be the case, but do you, do you think it was a calculated risk and they, or they truly said, these are our values and we're going to stand behind them no matter what, even if it means our stock is going to go down significantly. Which did not turn out to be the case, by the way, their stock actually went up. 
I think I can only guess at this because I'm not inside the walls of Nike, but I think they, I think it was, I'm not sure it was a calculated risk so much as it was a value decision that they said, this is, we stand, we believe in this. We think what Kaepernick's doing is not, as Trump says, you know, a slight against the, the armed forces or against people who died for the, it's not against the flag. He's, 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 he is a protesting treatment of uh, African-Americans in America. So it's a different thing. So I think, and then, you know, African-Americans are a big part of Nike's uh, brand. I mean, look at, look at the amount of athletes that Nike supports that are African-American. It's not just a, 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 a subsidiary of, of Nike. It's a huge part of Nike's brand. So I think they're just, they're a big company that's willing to stand their ground. That's, uh, that's an interesting take. So speaking of risk, what would be the biggest risk you've ever taken personally? Um, you know, Malcolm Gladwell had this great insight into entrepreneurs because I've been an entrepreneur since I was 29. And um, <clears throat> he says this, which is interesting. He said, the thing that entrepreneurs share in common is not an appetite for risk, but instead it's, it's the belief in a sure thing. So when I stepped away from agency life, I was making a lot of money. I was working for the top advertising, creative advertising agency in, in North America, Shia Day at the time. And I stepped away to start my own company. It really didn't feel like a risk to me. It felt like a sure thing because, as I mentioned earlier, I was creating the company I could not find. I knew in my heart that other writers would want to do business with my company because they were all experiencing the same thing. So where many people would look at starting a company as the biggest risk of their life, I really didn't think that. I really felt it was not a sure thing, but I just felt in my heart it was going to work. So starting a company I never felt was a big risk. I mean, starting a radio, a national radio campaign, a national radio show rather, I mean, there's a risk inherent in that because if you fall on your face, you're doing it in front of the whole nation. So mm -hmm. I would say that, is a, that was another risk that – You know, and I'd never done a national radio show before. When when CBC said we'll take it that day, I mean, Mike Tennant, who was my partner in that in the original show, and I had to figure out how to mount a radio show, <laughs> a national radio show. I mean, we had never done it before, mm -hmm. so it was a huge risk. We could have been, like I said, uh, booed off the stage pretty quickly. So, you know, I, I think in any in any endeavor, Arno, where you're putting yourself out there into the public sphere, be it a radio show or writing a book or uh, speaking to large audiences as I do. Like in my little world, I think all of that is is risk. You're, you're risking the pushback. You're you know, we get mostly great emails from listeners, but there's a small percentage that are very nasty. So you have to deal with that. And you just have to, uh, you have to have the courage to believe in what you do and be able to just, you know, try to stand your ground uh, publicly. And I think that takes a lot of, uh, it takes guts. I won't disagree with that. It's something I personally struggle with every day, but I find that with practice, it's something that becomes easier and easier as well. Um, so conversely, what would have been your biggest failure so far? Um, I, I've been pretty blessed not to have big failures. I mean, there's always little failures that you learn from where, you know, sometimes I would write a campaign that I felt so strongly about and then it didn't work quite as well as I hoped. It wasn't a failure. Like it wasn't a zero failure, but it wasn't as big as I might have thought it would be. Those are smaller things. Um, I don't know if I would, if I look back on big failures, I'm not sure I, I really had any big ones. I'm very fortunate, I think. I always had great partners uh, in business endeavors. Um, this was a medium failure uh, a number of years ago, and I want to say maybe around 2005, 2004, 
I started a, a division of our company called the Pirate Entertainment Group, PEG for short. And what it was was about uh, creating branded content, like doing radio shows. So you know, brought to you by brands or creating. So I did a radio series called The Job That Changed My Life, where I would interview famous people and ask them what was the job that changed the whole direction of your life. And then I got I found a a job site sponsor, an online job site sponsor to sponsor that show. Like I was doing that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Podcasting was just starting, but I was way ahead of the curve. I was too far ahead of the curve. I couldn't convince marketers to put money into branded content in, in that time, 2004, 2005, 2006. We did some interesting projects, but not enough to keep the division going. Now it's the hottest commodity out there like doing branded content and podcasts and all of that is really really taking off but i was just too far ahead of the curve in the mid 2000s i couldn't i couldn't get traction with advertisers that's that's a very interesting story and i'm sure there's some great lessons in there uh, what would be speaking of risks and failures um what would be the one or two most important lessons you've learned uh, so far one of the biggest lessons i learned early on in my career, thankfully, was that you have to be a great presenter in this business. And by that, I mean, so many great ideas die in the boardroom. And you have to become a great presenter. In other words, you have to be able to walk into a boardroom with a risky idea or a bold idea. And you have to be able to sell that idea to to hesitant clients. You have to be able to own the room and present such a great lead up so when you reveal your work, it feels inevitable that that's the right answer. You have to be able to fend off you know, concerns a client has about your work in the boardroom. In other words, you can't let them leave that boardroom uh, uh, unsure of the work. You have to make sure that within that hour or two hours, you completely convince them that this work is right for these following reasons. And I think I was always afraid as a presenter early in my life. I didn't really like the concept of standing up in front of a boardroom. I was really, I was kind of shy about it and, and insecure about it. Mm-hmm. But I had a great creative director early in my very first agency I ever worked at in the big leagues, Trevor Goodgall, who I mentioned in my book. And he was such a great presenter. He was, he taught me that presenting was theater. Mm-hmm. That there had to be a, a sense of theater in a presentation. It isn't just a business transaction. It's an actual, you have to make people feel what this campaign is going to feel like down the road once it's produced and executed. And, and he had a great way of just, he had so much energy and, and he was, he could, he was articulate and he wasn't afraid when a client had a major concern and he would slowly turn them around on their point of view. And I watched him in countless presentations and I learned by watching him, which is interesting because nobody teaches you how to present in the advertising business. Yet it is the next to generating ideas. It's the next most important thing is the selling of the ideas. So I learned early that you had to become a great presenter. So I, I really struggled because it was my greatest fear was standing up in front of a room, but I struggled to overcome that. And then I got to the point where I loved presentations. I looked forward to presentations. I really, I could, I just loved the challenge of a presentation. So I came a long way in my personal journey on becoming a, a, an effective presenter. But that was one of the biggest lessons I learned early on. So we've already established that creativity is pretty uh, important in your life. Um, where do you think that came from, if it's something we've, we haven't touched on already? Um, I don't know how to answer that. It's, it's hard to analyze oneself that way. I, I was always creative in some way or another. Even as a kid, I, w- I loved to draw. And uh, when I was in high school, I would be – I 
would do a lot of, uh, I had a television course in high school, believe it or not. I was always the one, you know, person who was coming into this classroom with ideas and then the whole class would sort of help me execute those ideas. And then when I went to university, I was kind of the same way. I could creatively come up with, with interesting ideas in our, in our film and, and television and radio course. And so there was always, when I look back, I guess some little spark there that I just loved creating ideas and uh, trying to figure out a way to express them. And, and then when I saw those advertising people that day in that lecture class, I don't know, I, I saw the way I could, I saw the career that would allow me to do that. Mm -hmm. This was a career built on ideas. And that's why I could take all those little threads of my past and sort of tie them all up into a bow in that particular industry. So, and my dad, you know, when I look back, my, my dad was a very creative guy, but that era of men were not allowed to pursue their, their artistic desires. So my dad worked in the mine in Sudbury for his whole career, yet he was a great singer. He was a great artist. He was, uh, he directed plays in the fifties in, in Sudbury, like, uh, you know, little local plays. Like mm -hmm. my dad was a very artistic guy, but in the fifties, there was just no options for someone to support a family with creativity. So, my, so if I look back to my parents, my dad was a very creative guy and my mom was very, was a nurse and very empathetic. And I think I, I got a sense of empathy from my mom because I think a great advertising person has great empathy for their client, their customers and the, and the people you're trying to reach. You have to really have a, a fondness or an understanding or you have to be able to live in someone else's shoes to know how to be relevant to them. So mm -hmm. from my two parents, I think I gleaned those, those two aspects. And that makes a lot of sense because I can actually relate uh, the same way. My, my father was also very creative, but, um, not necessarily in a creative profession on the outside. And my mother was also very empathetic. And, uh, and I think it's something you can kind of point out in most creative people's lives is at some point they had an influence that kind of took them there. Um, where do you find inspiration? Do you have a creative practice? How, how does that work in your life? Um, <clears throat> and by that, do you mean, Uh, when I'm trying to come up with a great idea, like when I'm trying to come up with an idea, what what are the inspirations? Yeah, or do you have uh, some kind of discipline that you you go through every day, or something that that kind of is aimed at um, fostering that creative spirit? Well, I'm a I'm a voracious reader, so I always have four or five books on the go at any given time. A very eclectic subject matter, by the way, like not just marketing books, but a book I'm reading uh, I read a little while ago was like 50 plants that changed the world mm -hmm. or uh, famous obituaries or, or famous eulogies rather. And so I'm very, a very eclectic reader. So that, that's a big part of, of my curiosity because I'm a very, very curious person. So I, I read a lot. I subscribe to a lot of magazines and newspapers. I'm a big Twitter guy. Uh, listeners are incredible. You know, they send me via Twitter incredible ideas for shows. They'll, they'll send me a tweet saying, Hey Terry, uh, have you ever considered doing a show on this subject? And it'll be a great subject that I would have never thought of had they not tweeted me. Mm -hmm. And, or they'll say, I was in, I was in vacation in Germany recently. I saw this billboard campaign. I didn't know if you've ever seen it before and they'll send it to me. It'll be fantastic. And it'll become part of my show. And I would have never seen it unless one of the listeners had, had sent it to me via Twitter. So social media has been a, a great sharing of information for me. And, uh, and really, I just, I just follow my muse a lot of the time on, on what I'm curious about. A lot of the shows we do, I'm very, very well versed on. Like I just recorded a show which hasn't aired yet on distress purchases. So those are the purchases in our lives that we hate, we need, but we hate to spend money on, like mm -hmm. car tires and insurance and roofing and those mm -hmm. things 
you know, when, when it comes time to that you need them, it just kills you because they're so expensive, but there's no joy in the purchase. So I, I have marketed those products for over 30 years. I knew that in this, that uh, category inside and out. Mm-hmm. And then there's other cate- other uh, topics we tackle on the show where I know nothing about. Yet it's in the marketing world. So I'll really just explore. I'll really just go in there like I'm a white belt in karate, you know, knowing nothing. And I'll go in there and I'll just try and I'll just learn about that aspect of the industry and then create a show around what I've learned. And it's just my curiosity that, that takes me there. Well, that makes a lot of sense. So outside of work and, and everything you do that's in the, in the public sphere, what do you do for fun? Do you have any hobbies? Well, um, I am a Beatles memorabilia collector, which I've been for most of my life. I'm a Beatles fanatic. Um, you may or may not know this, but in every show I do, this is a CBC version, not the podcast versions. Mm-hmm. There's a Beatle reference in every show I do. It could be a mention, it could be a piece of music, but in every single show, hidden somewhere, is a Beatle reference. Mm-hmm. Only a loyal listener would know that. But I'm a Beatles fanatic, so I collect interesting Beatles memorabilia. That's a passion of mine. I have a 1963 Carmen Ghia Volkswagen that I love. That is my constant little tinkering joy that I drive in the in the three seasons, not the winter, of course. Mm-hmm. But uh, I'm always kind of you know working on my Volkswagen, which I love. My recording studio is a 1969 Airstream trailer which I had fully restored. It looks it looks brand new, and inside that is my recording studio. So I, I'm into all things Airstream. So I'm, I'm constantly finding little great little parts for my Airstream. Uh, I, it's a mobile studio, so if I'm at home, I just walk outside, walk into my studio and record. But if I'm up at my cottage up north, I just pull my recording studio with me. Is so, that where you are today? I'm not in the studio right now. I'm looking at it through my window, <laughs> but I'm not in, but I will be in it later today because I have some recording to do. Okay. Okay. And so what do you get in particular out of those hobbies? Well, I've always been just to this day, even when I was a kid, I still get that same feeling about the incredible creativity of the Beatles. I just loved the creative force that was the Beatles, music first and foremost. But just everything they touched was just so incredible and how they didn't pander to the audience. They really followed their own muse and did what they wanted to do and broke all sorts of ground. So I just uh, I just love that aspect of the Beatles. I still I'm fascinated by them to this day. Um, my car is just, I just love, I love classic design. That's why I, I own a 1963 Volkswagen and a 1969 Airstream mm-hmm. and a 1957 jukebox. <clears throat> I love classic design that's kind of timeless. So I, I get a lot of joy out of working on my car. I get a lot of joy of being, you know, the novelty of being in a beautiful recording studio in a 1969 Airstream. I just love the whole vibe of that. And uh, I'm a big reader, so as I said said earlier, that's another passion of mine. So I collect books, old books, new books. I have quite an extensive library of books, and I get great joy out of reading. Like to me, a great a great afternoon is you know finishing a script, sitting down with a, either a coffee or a glass of wine, and cracking open a book, and and reading for a couple of hours is just heavenly to me. So I, I get I recharge that way. Mm-hmm. So before we wrap up the interview, I have a couple more questions for you. Um, I want to get on the topic of mentors briefly. Do you have any mentors and what, what do you get out of uh, re- those relationships? I mentioned earlier that Trevor Goodgall, the creative director of the first big time advertising agency that hired me was really my, my mentor because he, I had come out of a small agency in Burlington that really didn't like my work. I struggled there for two years. The creative director there really did not like my work. So then when I decided I'd try and get a job in the big leagues in Toronto, um, I knocked on a couple of doors and I met, one of those doors was Trevor Goodgall, 
The agency was called Campbell Ewald. And uh, he liked my portfolio of work, which I had done on the side. I couldn't really show any of my agency work up until that time because I didn't like it. So I did a spec portfolio of just ads I dreamed up. He kind of liked what I had in that portfolio and hired me. But he loved my thinking, which which really inspired me because I came out of a place that hated my thinking. Mm-hmm. Uh, to work for him, and he really loved my thinking. He loved my take on products and the the, the angle I would come at them. And he taught me, you know, uh, just what a great ad was and, and and what persuasion was. Like he just wasn't into creativity; he was into persuasion. And what was what did a what did a customer have to hear about this product, or how can we take the, what the benefit of this product is and express it in such a uh, uh, in a, a way that it was impossible to ignore. Like he was really all about being effective and creative. And that was such an epiphany to me because he really took me under his wing. He taught me how to present. As I said to you earlier, he would, I remember one of my first jobs there, I, I was doing a radio campaign for Eastern airlines, which was a huge thing for me to do an airline campaign. I had just come out of doing, you know, Burlington Toyota advertising and suddenly I'm doing airline. And I said to him one day, he said, I presented an idea. He liked it. And he said, who do you, what talent do you see doing this, this, this campaign? And I said, well, you know, I saw somebody on the, on the tonight show the other night who, who was a comedian who could play the piano and he tells jokes at the same time. And I said, this campaign's kind of like that. If I could find somebody like him and Trevor said, get him. <laughs> and Trevor, by saying that that day, Trevor opened up the world to me. Like he, he taught me that the world was your oyster. Like do not think small. Don't try and find an actor like that guy. Find that guy in Hollywood and bring him up here. That was an, that was an epiphany to me that you could actually think that way. So he was uh, a remarkable mentor to me that taught me a lot of things that I use to this day. Yeah, I can certainly see that. So the second to last question is a bit of a visioning exercise. And if you pictured yourself on, uh, on your deathbed, what would be the legacy you would want to leave behind? Great dad. That would be my, my number one thing, to be thought of as a great father um, and a great husband. And then I would say way, way down the list that uh, I was a uh, a pretty good ad man. And uh, and maybe people might remember that radio, that radio show as one of a, uh, as an interesting show that once ran on the CBC. I'd be a happy man if that was it. That's a great answer. Um, usually I close the interview with a, a bit of a tradition in the form of a question that you've already answered, so I'm not going to ask you, but I usually close with Stones or Beatles. Since you've already um, established that you're a huge Beatles fan, I'm not going to um, ask that question. But uh, it was a fantastic interview. I, I'm really thankful that you took the time to be with us today. And uh, I hope you got as much out of it as I did. Thank you, Arnold. Those are great questions. I really enjoyed it. Hey again, Arnold here. If you liked this interview, be sure to give us a review on SoundCloud or iTunes. This episode was produced by Revelator Studio with music by Bounce Trio. To be notified of upcoming episodes, sign up for our newsletter on our website at rvltr.studio. Keep on supporting creativity and never stop kicking fear in the nuts. Till next time, ciao.